I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of Joel, the prophetic book of Joel, and today we're going to be going through chapter 1. The title of this series is Joel Promised Restoration. I can't wait to get to some of the uh, things in the second and the third chapter, but we're going to have to work our way through a certain number of things in the first chapter in order to do that. Today, we're going to be looking at the plague of locusts and a call to prayer. And uh, so we're going to just take this and walk through it. That's why you need to have your Bible or your smart device. Keep it on your lap. Keep it open in front of you. And we'll be looking at these different verses and applying those to our lives today. We'll begin with verse 1. The word of the Lord that came. Now, There's a question, probably not that our people are asking by and large, but if you're joining in and you're not a regular attender to Heritage, you might be wondering why are we studying a seemingly obscure Old Testament prophetic book like Joel? As we read through it, if you've read through it before, you're going to find that it's it's filled with strange and, and even scary, I think, for the children, word pictures of, let me just say it like this, armies of bugs that as they were pictured, they looked like war horses with fangs like lions. Now, for our folks, we already know this. Uh, we normally teach through a book of the Bible. We'll toggle back and forth between the Old and the New Testament. We've been in wonderful New Testament books like Ephesians and Romans. We spent five years, if you'll remember, on that, and First Peter. But we've also gone to the Old Testament through books like the book of Job and the book of Leviticus. Here is why we do that. We believe it so strongly that Joel is a part of all Scripture that is breathed out by God And therefore, all Scripture, including Joel, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so if you're going to be that child of God, then we believe that you need the message of the Word from the Old and the New Testament as well. Jesus said, and you'll remember this from a couple of weeks ago, as he was speaking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they they were not getting it. They didn't realize what was going on around them. And so Jesus explained it to, to them, but he explained it through the Word and specifically through the Old Testament. It's alluded to here including the book of Joel. It says, and beginning with Moses, this is Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, now watch this, in all of the scripture, the things concerning himself. So Joel is part of the word of God that we preach. And... I chose Joel looking through some of the next things that we want to look at. It seems to be particularly relevant right now. One of the main reasons we need the book of Joel is because we need to have our focus, or let me say it another way, 
the lens with which, through which we see things. We need it to be shaped by the Word of God rather than worldly media. Now, let me be clear about something that I've been trying to say over the last couple of weeks, and I will continue to try to say this. This is not a word, and I've heard this a lot. This is not a word about trying to be the church in the coronavirus age. This is the church's age and not a virus's. It may surprise you as I say this, but the main news happening in the world right now does not concern data about the spread of the virus or the economy and the stimulus and the free money coming your way. The main news, according to the Word of God, is the church. You see, Jesus Christ, who is invested with all authority in heaven and on earth, the Bible says in Matthew 16 that he is building his church. And he goes on to say, not even the gates of hell can hold back the final advance of his church, let alone a virus and the temporary panic and financial freefall. So the reason we preach through Joel is it's highly relevant. It is part of the Word of God. It is profitable to us. But, but I want you to look at something else. I mentioned a minute ago that Jesus said that all of the Old Testament Scriptures point to Him. And, and I thought about this, and I began to look. And, and in the first verse, again, it doesn't just say the Word of the Lord that came, but it came to Joel, to Joel. What's in a name? Joel's name means Jehovah is God. Where is Jesus in Joel? He is the Messiah, later on we're going to see this, who's going to offer salvation to all mankind. Chapter 2, verse 32, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That again will be mentioned in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and in the book of Romans. And, and then this stunning reality that the Messiah in Joel, it says, will baptize his covenant people with the Holy Spirit. That's found in the book of Acts. In Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. But, but if you read through this carefully, and I want to connect this to the name of the author of this book, Joel, Jehovah is God, Jesus shows up at least 31 times. Now, here's what I want you to do to get a picture of this. You'll have to have a paper Bible to do this, but, but you can do this as an exercise in the next couple of days. I would like you to go through, and every time, if you're using a version like I am, the ESV, or a, a, a literal uh, translation uh, of the Bible, I want you to circle every instance of the word Lord. Now, you'll see something there. That word is probably spelled with all caps. And if you do that, you're going to circle, at least by my count, 31 different times that the word Lord is used. That word is Yahweh. The Latinized version of that is Jehovah. Jehovah. Yahweh is God. Now, parenthetically, do you think it was important that the author of this book reminded the people 
that they had forgotten that Yahweh, Jehovah, is God? According to the Jews, that word Yahweh, spelled Y-H-W-H, Jehovah, is the, the, the word that says, I am. Do you know that even to this day, that many Jews will not say that word or write that word because it is so holy? Now, we come to the New Testament, and over and over again, Jesus referred to himself as, I am. On several occasions, he encountered a crowd, and some of the religious leaders who wanted to pin him down, they would say, hey, what's your name? And he would answer, I'll boil it down for you, he would answer like this, I am. And they got it. They understood and even tried to kill him for his utter blasphemy, saying, you, being a man, make yourself out to be God by uttering that name. Jesus and the gospel permeate the prophecy of Joel. Let's move on. Verses 2 and 3. I want to read this. And you follow along, and then we'll, uh, we'll just make a couple of comments about this. I, I think this is a key, uh, a key point uh, that's just almost an addendum to the whole book. Hear, you elders, give ear all inhabitants in the land. Now, remember, he's writing to the southern kingdom, to Judah. And then he says something that, again, is reminiscent of what I hear today, has such a thing happened in your days. In other words, Joel is saying what is happening now is unprecedented. Or in the days of your fathers. Let's go back a generation. Now watch what he does. He says, tell your children of it. It's more than just the locust. It's the response and what God will do in the response, in his response to the people. But tell your children of it. But that's not all. Let's go down a generation. Let your children tell their children. But that's not enough. Let it go down another generation and their children to another generation. In other words, this happening that is going on right now, you need to be sharing with the generations after you. And right here is listed up to four generations. When some of your great-great-grandchildren will not even remember your name, they will need to remember what God did in the days of the invasion of the locust. This is a picture of the gospel. Tell how God got your attention. How he called you to examine yourself and to repent of your sin, how he turned your devastation and he restored your blessing. And share how he is specifically speaking to you during these days of a great plague or pestilence. Sin's devastating effects, the graciousness of God and mercy, we'll see that in chapter 2, to hear my prayer of repentance and restore the years that the locust has, has eaten. I'm not going to read what, what follows uh, uh, the same chapter, chapter 1, verses 4 through 12, and then we'll skip, and, and you can read verses 15 through 20. Uh, but but th this is the picture of the invasion of the locust. Now, 
Every book in the Bible has its own key to its interpretation, and the key to the prophecy of Joel is found in verse 15. Read along with me while I read it. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Now, I want you to see several things, and we're going to come back to this verse in just a few moments. First of all, the results, and I'm talking about the immediate results of this invasion, this plague of locusts, is utterly devastating. I will read verse 4. Listen to it. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now, when I look at this, and I'm interpreting this as literal bugs, okay? Literal locusts. And there are four waves. Some say that they, these represent the stages in the development of the locusts. And I want you to see in this that, that this is a picture of utter devastation. You, you can picture it as the first wave that comes in. They destroy the leaves of the trees and of the vines. They destroy the fruit, all of it. And when all of that is gone, then they go after the branches. And they chew off the bark, and then they go all the way down to the roots. And then, according to, to what I have read, they bury their eggs, and the eggs hatch, and the locusts start all over again. Now, now, folks, this is obvious, and we're going to come to this at least in part today, but isn't this a picture of the devastation of sin? And I'll say this in a minute. It may not be big sin. It may be little sin. And sometimes those collected together can be the most devastating. You see, the locust... The coronavirus cripple our temporary security, but sin kills the soul. Now, I want you to see the rest of this, and I, I encourage you to read it, because what you're going to see is this picture of utter devastation, and it goes beyond anything that we're experiencing today, but there are some parallels. You've got to consider that this was an agrarian culture, they made their living through farming primarily. It wiped out their economy. Read it, all of it. We talk about our economy being tanked. Their economy was gone. There was no talk right then of, quote, getting the economy going again. There was no economy to get going again. I want you to notice something else. And the priests come into play in their worship and they're lamenting, they're mourning, they're weeping, they're wailing because it took away, this devastating plague took away their ability to worship in the way that they were used to doing it, the way that they normally would. You're going to see as you read through this that it touched every segment of the population. It drove people to incredible despair. Here are words that are used in this passage of Scripture. Weeping, wailing, 
mourning. There was incredible loss. There's a picture. It it says lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. What what, what an incredible picture of the loss of of a a young lady who is waiting to be married and her, her bridegroom dies. And the mourning of that kind of thing. That's the picture. There's also the mention of shame. You know what there should have been? And it mentions this. There should have been, there are three different words that are used. Only two words are are translated this way in in chapter 1. But there should have been gladness. There should have been great pleasure. There should have been joy. But it says all of that, all of that was dried up. Here's a second thing to see from this verse. And it it comes in the form of a question. Who was behind this invasion of locust and its utter devastation? That would be a question that I hear people ask today. Now, I can imagine what would have happened if back then, in, in the days of Joel, their media, let's just say they, they had a lot of media outlets and their media got a hold of it. I wonder how they would have handled it. Would they have been doing a lot of finger pointing? Would they have said, well, the, the king is to blame. He botched it by delaying the cure for it. They might have been asking, you know, did this come from an Egyptian wet market? Or was it that it came from a lab that was studying locusts and their invading properties? No, no doubt, conspiracy theories abounded. Was, was this an accident or was it intentional on the case of someone who meant us harm? Now here's a question that at least the people right then in all of their mourning and weeping and all the rest, and it's a question that I don't hear the media asking today, is the Lord involved? You see, that's why Joel is writing to help these people. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed and is profitable for teaching. He wanted to teach them the truth. Look at back again at, at this verse from the Almighty it comes. And let's go on. He is the one who, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, he is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And folks, there are a lot of people who do not believe this, even theologians. But here's one thing that we've looked at, and I would say it again. If it comes from God, knowing that God is not only God, but God is also good, always, all the time. Can this ultimately be anything but good, even though we might not understand it all right now? Here's a third question that grows out of of verse 15. Why did God send this plague on his, I want you to get this, his covenant people? In the Old Testament, his covenant people were the Jews, all right? I won't go into all of the discussion, but you know that there was a remnant. There were believing Jews and there were unbelieving Jews. But we come into the New Testament who are his covenant people today. We are his church made up of Jews and Gentiles because everyone who calls 
upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So why did God send the plague on his covenant people? Now let me give you a couple of answers. I'm not going to pretend that this is exhaustive, but these are things that have rattled around in my thinking and perhaps in, in your thinking as well. Could this be simply a natural consequence of sin? Could this be something that, that because we're fallen and the, the, the cosmos has fallen, that, that it has just happened? Well, there could be some truth in that. Even Christians are going to get the COVID virus. Okay? Here's another thought that I've had. Could this be God's judgment for sin? Now, I chose that word carefully. I'm going to use another word in just a second. Could it be God's judgment on his covenant people for their sin. You say, was, does that really happen? Temp temporally, it does. Uh, physically, it does. I think of people like Ananias and Sapphira. I think of people like those at the Christian, excuse me, at the Corinthian church who were misusing and abusing the Lord's su Supper. And, and Paul specifically said, for this reason, some of you are sick and some of you sleep. Or could this be God's discipline? He knows what he is doing, and all discipline for the moment is not pleasant. It seems severe, but could this be God's discipline for growth? I've read a lot of commentators on this book, the book of Joel. And do you know that most of them say that Joel never really gives a clear reason for the plague? I think he does. Now, I'm going to go through a series of passages, and you'll see them on your screen. I'd like you to follow along, because in these, I think, God, I think Joel is doing more than just giving us hints. He's showing us the problem in God's covenant people in Judah of that time. Now, I just want you to follow along. That's what he's saying about then. And, and if you would, it's always good to take the Word of God, ask the Holy Spirit, is any of this true of me? Or is any of this true of our church, Heritage Baptist Church? Or is any of this true of the church of Jesus Christ in our country or in the world? Joel 2, 12. Look at what Joel says. We're going to come to this and at least maybe not next week, but the next week we're going to be talking about the biblical teaching, the biblical doctrine of repentance and why it's so important. But here's what Joel says to them, yet even now declares the Lord. So it's not just Joel, it's God himself saying, return to me with all your heart. A couple of things there, it indicates that they, they had defected in some way. Were they half-hearted in their worship, in their followership of the Lord Jesus Christ? Hmm. Let's read on. Could it be that, that Joel had in mind the blessings and the curses of the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt at the end of Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 26 and 28? And we'll read some of these passages of scriptures. First, the promised blessing that was given uh, to the people of Israel. This day the Lord your God commands you to do all these statutes and rules. Please don't get hung up on that because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. These commandments were given for their well-being, not only for the glory of God. You shall therefore 
Here's another hint that parallels what I just read out of Joel. You shall therefore be careful to do them, the commandments, with all your heart. That sounds like Joel just went to Deuteronomy 28 and lifted it out of there. And all your soul, and if you faithfully obey, not perfectly obey, but if you faithfully obey, being careful to do all his commandments, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And then Moses lists a catalog of blessings. You need to go back to Deuteronomy 28 and read those. There is blessing in obedience, and please don't hear me going off the rails on the, the health and wealth kind of thing. There are spiritual blessings for obedience to God. Now let's move on. But if you do not obey, okay, we come to the other side of that that Moses was clear about, and that I think Joel is referring to, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, covenant people, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes, what I, which I commanded you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And there he gives a catalog, and we have to slide down in that catalog until we finally come to this one. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. And then he comes lastly to these words. Why did all this happen? Because, and I want you to listen to this very, very carefully. It goes back to what he was talking about in, in, uh, uh, earlier in verse 12. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. That's, it's always a heart thing, people. Because, now watch this, because of the abundance of all things God has so richly blessed us. You, you know, we, we use the word unprecedented. If anything is unprecedented, church, it is the physical, the material blessings that we have received living in this culture, in the Western world. That's what's unprecedented in our world and in our history. But look at this. Because of the abundance of all of these things, we should be living and serving the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart, not because he has blessed us, but just for who he is. But we haven't done that, or at least they hadn't done that. I'm not accusing anyone yet, but they hadn't done that. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness, and lacking everything. Oh, there have been so many responses to the pandemic. Several weeks ago, a Pennsylvania uh, state representative, Stephanie Borowitz, proposed a resolution that called for a day of, get this, prayer, fasting, and humiliation. The coronavirus, she said, may be a judgment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins. Now, it's not that long. I, 
I can make these copies available to you. But she presented this for the, the day of prayer and humiliation and fasting to be called on March 30th, and she presented it as a house resolution. Well, let me just read some of the things that she is saying. And, and I, I think that even though this is a, a, a thing presented on a state level, it, it has implications for the church of Jesus Christ. She says this, whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow. Certainly if a state can do that, can't we as the church? With assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. In so much as we know that by His divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisement in this world. And may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of the pandemic which now desolates this commonwealth may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. And we have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. And we have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. And we have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched that and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts, that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own, intoxicated with unbroken success. We have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud for pray, to pray to the God that made us. And it behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Reading through that, I believe that she is referring back to a prayer that was issued by another leader of our nation, Abraham Lincoln. How do you think the media responded to that? Did you even know? Was there a media story about that other than to criticize? If you go on the media, you will see her mocked and ridiculed. The reactions were scathing. And it was put forth as a resolution. Guess where it is now? Was it passed? No. It's in committee. Of course, God calls all people everywhere to repent and believe. But what about those of us who are believers? Could could God be saying something to you? I know He's spoken to me as I prepared this message. But could He be saying something to you about your presumption instead of dependence upon God? Now, I, I, I think I can safely say this. For, for most of you who are listening, it's not going to be a matter of, and I'll put quotes around this, big sins. Is there such a thing as a big or a little sin? But, but I'm just saying that for the case of argument. You might not have been committing any big sins or major 
immorality, although maybe you have. But most of what it has been, and it'll be that way for the majority of people in this church, could be called minor defections from God. I'm going to put quotes around the word minor because you know what? They all add up. Not being careful, as Joel says, to obey his loving commands with all of your heart, delighting in other things other than him. Like Israel, the consequence of sin, and some of you know this, you're, you're sitting there, you know this as you're listening, you know that your fruitfulness has been eaten up. You know that your worship has dried up and you're weeping over the damage inflicted to your spiritual well-being. I'm not talking about the virus. I'm talking about sin. And, and as I read this, it boils down, and I was thinking about this even this morning, to what Joel says. And he says, people, covenant people of God, it boils down to a couple of things. Carelessness and convenience. When my son was growing up, he and I, and my grandson too, we all love knives. I think a lot of guys just love knives. So as Jason was growing up, and then Jackson, and I've taught him, there is a right way and there is a wrong way to use a knife. Most of you know this, um, men and women, that when you're cutting something, you're carving something, you always put the blade away from you. Don't ever do this. You know what that is? That's carelessness. I've known that since I was a boy, and my dad and my granddad taught me how to use a knife. But do you know what? I've got scars all over my hands from being careless with a knife. Convenience. Most of you all know what 7-Eleven stores are. They are called what? Convenience stores. Why are they called convenience stores? Because in, in a pinch, if you need something, you run in there and get it. But when you look at the price, you think, oh my goodness, you don't want to do all of your weekly shopping at a 7-Eleven. It may be convenient, but folks, it is utterly costly. So what's the first part of this remedy? Here it is. And, and the next part comes next week in terms of repentance. Verse 13 and 14 in the verse 19. Let me read it for you. You can follow along. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in past the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And then verse 19, where Joel gets in on it, he says, To you, O Lord, I call. So here's the, the, the first part of the remedy that he says. If you find yourself in this, and, and this is beyond the, the pandemic around us. We're talking about the inner reality of our own sin and how that they might have overwhelmed us and dried up our worship. 
and cut off our fruitfulness and damaged our spiritual well-being? Here's the first part of the answer, to cry out to God, to call out to Him, to tell Him, Lord, I've been careless. Listen, folks, I have been so careless in my life and I bear scars. And I've sought convenient ways to God. You know what? I found out that the only thing they do is to prove costly. So the first part of the remedy, God calls His covenant people to fervent, humble, heartfelt, and submissive prayer. Can there be restoration? There's the promise in chapter 2, verse 25. I will restore the days that the locust have eaten, he promises. And so he calls people of all ages, and here you are listening to this, and perhaps you have children in your house. This is for them too. He includes himself in this. And I have to ask this question of, of me, not just you, not just of the church, but why is prayer so often the last resort rather than our first response? Now, I'm going to say this at this point. Don't get lost in the fasting and the sackcloth and whether or not they're for today. We'll talk about those things hopefully in a future sermon. But basically, here's what it's saying. Humble your heart and cry out to God. You know the remedy. Don't do what the House of Representatives did in Pennsylvania. Don't put it in committee and let it die there. I know that the leaders of our church have looked at this and have said we need a prayer initiative. We don't know what all it's going to look like, but would you begin right there where you are by praying? It's not making a deal with God. It's not trying to twist His arm to get Him to do what we want Him to do. It's not for show. Prayer is based on the finished work of Christ on the cross and always seeks to line us up with His sovereign purpose. Let me just say a word to you if you're listening to this and if you are without Christ today. I said that the book of Joel is filled with the gospel. One of the, one of the great lines in the book of Joel repeated at least twice in the New Testament Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What a great thing it would be if you would see your sin and you would see the, the, the effects of your sin, the scars that you bear, the price that you've had to pay and the bondage that you're in. But by repenting, calling out to God and repenting and turning to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sinners like you, and who was buried, and who was raised on the third day, who promises that if you call out to Him, no matter who you are, where you are, what age you are, you will be received into His covenant family. Would you do that today? I want to pray for you and pray for the rest of the church as we conclude our time, then we'll sing and have a benediction. Father, I thank you for this time of sharing in your word today. And uh, Father, I thank you that your word is so rich and deep and I haven't been able to uncover 
I, I, I feel just a, a tiny, anything but a tiny bit of, of the richness of what the book of Joel contains in this first chapter. But Lord, I pray that you would teach us even in these things that we have looked at and that we have learned today. Let it be more than just hearing with our ears and taking it intellectually with our minds. I pray that we would be careful to accept it with our hearts and to obey out of a new relationship with Christ. Father, I thank you and praise you. Pray that you would bless our people today so that we might be a blessing to those around us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.